Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. I happen to be an oldest child. We're supposed to be dutiful overachievers, according to some of the so-called birth order research. Years ago, I read an article that said firstborn children were so overrepresented in Ivy League schools that some were actually considering quotas. (laughs) This made me feel a little better about not taking some younger sibling's place at Brown, instead opting for John Brown University, which was a half mile from our house, granted free tuition to faculty kids and had an acceptance rate that hovered right around, y'all come, right about then. (laughs) The Austrian psychotherapist, Alfred Adler, began studying and hypothesizing about birth order a little over a century ago now. Adler believed firstborns to be neurotic, dutiful, and somewhat conservative. We youngest children were thought to be overly ambitious, while those in the middle got the prime positions and were the emotionally stable ones. Adler himself happened to be the second of seven children, if you're curious. Middle child syndrome hadn't been invented yet. In the mid-1990s, an American psychologist named Frank Soloway looked for historical figures that fit their birth type order as he understood them. He thought later-born children would be groundbreaking thinkers and revolutionaries and found Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, and Mahatma Gandhi among their ranks. He expected oldest children to be overrepresented among strong leaders. Turns out that both Joseph Stalin and Benito Mussolini had their parents' undivided attention for the first few years of their lives. I kind of prefer the associations with exclusive colleges to those of murderous tyrants, But realizing I haven't been responsible for any genocides quite yet does make me feel a little better about being such a relative slacker as a firstborn. After all, my younger brother Kirk is the one of us who somehow got both the PhD and the basketball skills. We're not twins, but the image of Jacob coming into the world, gripping his older brother's heel has always felt a little bit familiar. The younger ones are in hot pursuit of our place of honor from the beginning. By the time Kirk beat my high school cross-country time, a sport he really wasn't even all that into, his heels were already way too far out front for me to grasp. Some of a person's identity seems to be knit into the bones. Some of it's the result of cultural norms and customs, like giving the firstborn male the lion's share of the inheritance, which seems reasonable to me, given all the heel-grabbing we have to endure. Some of a person's identity comes from negotiating a place within our families of origin. Some results from who loved us and who didn't. Some of it comes from blessings we've received by luck or cunning or grace. And some comes from the blessings we think we deserve but never got. What the story of Jacob and Esau teaches us is that none of these elements of identity is sufficient. We're some admixture or amalgamation of them all, and probably plenty more over time. And as so many of these old stories drive home, God is not to be found 
in our deliverance from the forces of family and culture and history that shape who we are in wonderful and horrible ways. But if God is to be found, it's right in the midst of them. Rebecca and Isaac's two sons are born with recognizable traits. They're almost cliches, right? Esau is hairy and ruddy at birth. He grows up to be a man of the outdoors. He pleases his father with a game he brings home and prepares for him. Later in Genesis, in another moment of trickery, we're told that Jacob is a smooth man, not so hairy and stereotypically male. Jacob prefers life inside the tents with his mother. There's even a midrash about the lentil soup he he tempts Esau with. The rabbis said he was trying to cook something delicious to compete with Esau's game to win the affection of the father that had eluded him all his life. But he cooks lentils and vegetables because the smooth indoor sun's no hunter. He's hopeless. So consider what we've learned in these few short verses about what's shaped who Jacob is in particular. The culture had strong opinions about birth order. It said the firstborn son was made to be the heir. The particular personality of his strong, rugged firstborn child was also a lot more what Isaac had in mind when he prayed for a son. I don't think I need to remind you that this was a very patriarchal culture as well, since we are literally talking about the patriarchs. So Rebecca's preference for Jacob could almost be read as another strike against him. One more indication he's just not going to be up for the job of fathering the nation of Israel. Patriarchy is a man's man's work, you know. Such are the dynamics that shaped Jacob. Shaped him to be a bit of a trickster, maybe. How else was he to make his way in a world in which everything conspired to keep the family's wealth and power and even its respect from him? There are trickster motifs in literature and myths across all kinds of cultures in this world. From the coyote and Native American myth to the Greek god of wine, Dionysus, to Br'er Rabbit in African-American storytelling, to Jack in his beanstalk, to Bart Simpson and the Roadrunner. And part of what tricksters do is find ways to disrupt the structures that define who matters and who holds the power. It's precisely because they don't quite hold that power and position that they learn some other sometimes ethically questionable ways of going about things. But remember, the ones in power are almost always the ones who make the mores, or at least decide which ones to enforce. Which is why it may be most stunning about the Jacob story that, that it was who it was passed down to us by. The Hebrews passed it down. Spoiler alert, this Jacob will be renamed Israel after he wrestles with God at the river Jabbok. So in passing down this story, Israel's saying, Jacob, the younger, smooth, indoor, mother's son and trickster, we're his heirs. We're Jacob. In Israel's story and in ours as their spiritual heirs as Christians, the trickster's not a peripheral peripheral character who sneaks in occasionally to make corrections. He's our namesake which means there's a disruption built into the foundation of our faith tradition 
And this disruption should be a comfort and a challenge to, at, one, at, at once to all of us in the spiritual lineage of Jacob. To insert some more contemporary categories, whether you see yourself as more conservative than liberal in your faith and worldview, or whether you see yourself as more liberal than conservative in your faith and worldview, this disruption at the base of our tradition should be both a comfort and a challenge. The story's conservative in its acceptance of handed down structures, right? We're all born into families and customs and expectations and moral systems, and we're shaped by our places within them from before we know who we are. We're fools to pretend otherwise. Some birthrights and blessings aren't made up on the fly by free individuals. They exist within ethical and religious codes that are bigger than any one person's interpretation, bigger even than any one generation's interpretation. Esau, the text says clearly, despised his birthright, so he lost it. Because like it or not, that's just how some birthrights work. The story is also liberal in the way that the accepted structures can still be challenged and disrupted. They're stable and even sacred, but they're not eternal. And the trickster undermines or alters the tradition according to the terms of the tradition, even if the loopholes are in the fine print. Jacob tricked his brother out of his birthright, and Esau lost it, because like it or not, that's just how some birthrights work. There's an element of acceptance and an element of disruption in the life of faith. Both are essential. We need people in our lives who tend more toward one than the other. We need firstborns and we need tricksters, I think. Maybe what we need to accept first is that there's some of each of them in each of us. And maybe if we can learn to befriend the Jacob and the Esau in ourselves, our lives will grow toward the wholeness God has made us for. A wholeness that looks like, well, you'll have to stay with this story a little longer to see. Suffice for today to say that neither the older brother who sold off his identity for a bowl of lentil stew, nor the trickster brother who pulled off that most infamous sting will we'll know real wholeness until the birthright loses its claim on both of their identities. When they embrace at a river in the one transforming miracle that is equal parts disruption and acceptance. The miracle we know not as birthright, not as blessing, but as forgiveness. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.